With me this morning on My Matters is Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU. Good morning, Dr. Philip. Good morning, Charles. Have you seen the new Joker film? No, I haven't, actually. You haven't, yeah? Do you know anything about the Joker? Well, from the Batman series, yes. Okay. I mean, he's a bad man, right? (laughs) Dressed up like a Joker, yeah. That's right. He's got um, mental illnesses and, uh, you know, and the reason he's become the way he's become, especially in this latest rendition of the Joker, is because uh, some of his mental issues have not been addressed. Mm. Uh, You know, a lot of people have been triggered by this character. And uh, this morning, I'm just wondering, I mean, how bad can mental illnesses get if not treated? or medicated? Well, you know, the risk of violence with mental illness is actually um, sort of, you know, over-exaggerated. It's not as bad as what people would expect. But you do have the occasional, you know, people with a mental illness that take on violence as a way to express. So there are occasional, but their percentage is very low. And treatment is essential in helping people to control that. So we can divide mental illness largely into the low prevalence or the more severe major mental illnesses and then the high prevalence and the milder mental disorders. So the low prevalence and severe mental illnesses are like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And they're about 1-2% to of the population. Now, in some of people with schizophrenia or bipolar, there can be an element of violence or aggression. And that can be controlled with treatment, with medication, with therapy. All of that does control that. Of course, with your minor mental illnesses, illnesses like depression, they can also end up being more severe Mm -hmm. without treatment and that can lead to suicide as well. Right. Um, And coming back to the Joker, I mean, partly society is to blame for, you know, the issues that that come up in this Mm. film and how he becomes the Joker, per se, the bad man. Um, Can movies like this cause viewers to imitate the actions portrayed? Because there was some worry in the U.S. that there would be, you know, public shootings Mm. when this movie came out. Yeah, well, copycat crimes and uh, copycat uh, behavior like suicides are are something that do occur. They're not uh, hugely prevalent, but it is more in people who already are vulnerable. So Mm -hmm. it's what's sort of termed as a state of priming, you know, an agitated state in the mind that experiences when it receives or stores persuasive images which are either good or bad. And in some cases, the screen can provide like a blueprint for crime. And that's when the copycat crimes may occasionally occur. But these only occur in susceptible younger individuals. And overall, the complex behaviors like violence, crime, they have multiple roots, genetics, family, life, personality, school, peer experiences, values. So it's it's a huge gamut of things that actually, mm-hmm. you know, interplay together. So I, I think it's not appropriate to just blame one, right. but that's why we have age restrictions for shows. Oh, absolutely. Yep. All right. When we come back, we'll take a look at insomnia and other mental health conditions and how they should be treated, according to one TV broadcaster, with the same seriousness as cancer. That's up next after Celine Dion, A New Day Has Come on Light.
And with me this morning on Mind Matters, Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU. It looks like insomnia uh, should be treated seriously as it can affect mental health. I guess that's true. I mean, how detrimental can insomnia be, not just to your health, but to your mental health? Yeah, well, insomnia actually can have significant effects on our health. And some of them are obvious, but others are actually quite subtle. And the effects can be both psychological as well as physical. I mean, psychological effects can be mood changes, poor motivation, lack of energy. People get a little bit more angry, irritable, and Mm -hmm. anxious. The physical effects include things like stroke or asthma, seizures, and it can decrease your immune level. Obesity and diabetes mellitus and hypertension, heart disease have been linked to sleep deprivation as well. But psychologically, there is a very close link between long-term chronic insomnia and depression and anxiety. It's a chicken and egg thing. Sometimes right. the depression and anxiety causes the insomnia, but mm-hmm. sometimes can be the other way around as well. Right. Of course, there's also increased risk for accidents, poor work or study performance, memory and judgment difficulties. Mm-hmm. And an analysis of 16 studies with 1 million participants found that there's a correlation of sleep deprivation and death. Wow. So, yeah, it is a it serious is thing. Very serious. Now, what's the best way to treat insomnia? I mean, with and without medication like pills, sleeping yeah. pills. Actually, sleeping pills is most most often in my books the last option. Right. <clears throat> because the problem with sleeping pills is you develop tolerance and you can very easily develop dependence. Mm. And if you have chronic insomnia, that's not the way to go at all because you're not going to get better in a day or two. So I think the first thing is rule out secondary causes. 80% of insomnia is due to another cause. Most of them are psychological, but there are some physical causes as well. Some of those are like sleep apnea, you know, asthma, or some medications that you take can actually affect your sleep as Mm -hmm, well. mm -hmm. People who have poor scheduling. Sleep hygiene is the best remedy for insomnia. And that's basically making lifestyle changes to ensure you have a quality sleep. One of the important things in sleep hygiene is setting the time to wake up. You know, everyone thinks, well, weekends come, I can sleep in. Right. But that actually makes your sleep worse, you know, and you need to actually fix the time to wake up and fix the time to sleep. Generally, adults need six to eight hours. Mm -hmm. Don't go beyond and don't right. go below, you know. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of other stuff that you can get. And webmd.com is a good place to identify steps for sleep hygiene. All right. Well, coming up, it looks like mental health care is hit by an alarming shortage of psychiatrists uh, in the UK. We'll take a look at what the situation here is in Malaysia next after the traffic update and in sync music of my heart on light. And with me is psychiatrist Dr. Philip George. It looks like uh, in the UK, mental health care is hit by an alarming shortage of psychiatrists. And I remember you saying something like this is Mm. also the case here in Malaysia. Are we in dire need of psychiatrists? Oh, if it's alarming in the UK, it's emergency levels in Malaysia. Oh, wow. Because we have... One per 80,000 psychiatrists. Now, the WHO actually recommends one psychiatrist per 10,000 population. Singapore has 3.48 per 100,000. You know, we have 1.27 psychiatrists per 100,000 population. We only have about 400 plus psychiatrists in the country Mm -hmm. for a population of 32, 33 million. Australia has 3,000 psychiatrists. So you can imagine the need there. Yes. When I was in Sabah, working in Sabah, we had uh, two psychiatrists for a population of 2 million. You know, you can't see 
I mean, the National Health and Morbidity Survey suggests that 30% of people have a mental health problem. How are you going to be able to address that mm-hmm. if we have such shortage of psychiatrists and mental health experts? Yeah, indeed. And how accessible is psychiatric help here in Malaysia? I mean, you know, we've got what you said, 400, right? Yeah. And are these all um, psychiatrists in the public sector or are these in private practice? Yeah. And, you know, th- your average Malaysian, yeah. you know, who may not want to spend 300 ringgit per hour for yeah. a private sector psychiatrist. I mean, how accessible is this help? Yeah, so the majority are still in public hospitals, but there is another big group in government, in uh, universities, and then there are private psychiatrists as well. The majority, sad to say, are concentrated in urban areas and largely in Wilaya Pasukutuan and Selangor. Mm-hmm. And so if you go out to Sabah, Sarawak, there are lesser and lesser number of psychiatrists. Uh, so the accessibility depends on location sometimes. There are large wait lists right. to see a psychiatrist in public hospitals. And, you know, the affordability, again, is an issue, like you mentioned, in private. If you were to see a physician, it may be covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. But if you see a psychiatrist, you can't talk to your insurance about that. Of course, things like that are hopefully changing now. Right. And that some insurance companies are turning around and covering for that issue. There are also, you know, the resource list. So people don't know where to look for help. Mm-hmm. And we need to promote that and uh, identify where they can actually look for help. There needs to be more than just psychiatrists. There needs to be psychologists, counsellors. Hospitals don't have psycholo- as many psychologists as they actually require. Right. And I think general practic- practitioners need to step up and start managing and helping people with mental health problems as well. Indeed. And if you have, um, well, college-bound children, you yep. may want to, you know, explore this option. Where <laughs> yes, do psychiatry, please. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, coming up, uh, it looks like um, over in the UK, once again, uh, Um, NHS are opening clinics to help child addicts of computer games. We'll be taking a look at that next after Men at Work Down Under here on Light. On My Matters this morning, Dr. Philip George, and it looks like uh, in the UK, NHS have opened clinics to help child addicts of computer games. It's become a real problem over there. Uh, Do you feel that addiction to video games is a real issue? Yeah, it's, it's definitely on the rise. And uh, I've seen patients myself in my own clinic. But we can divide addictions into substance-related and behavioral. Behavioral are like gambling and video games and internet and pornography. Uh, But they're still addictions. Mm -hmm. And they're basically, you know, persistent problematic behavior despite knowledge of negative consequences that affect occupational and social functioning. So behavioral addictions have a high rate of co-occurrence. It means they, they're very often together with other problems like other drug use or they can be a dual diagnosis where there is some mental health problem. In a lot of the cases that I see, they also have underlying depression or anxiety and right. they use the video game you know, behavioral addiction as a way to cope. Typically, there are male, below 30, shy, troubled teenagers mm-hmm. and children. It's not in ICD-10 or DSM-5, which is the Bible of psychiatry and psychology, but we know it's an issue and a problem and, you know, I think it's important to address it in our community as well. Right. Do we have such services in Malaysia specifically dealing with computer game addiction? Uh, not 
as far as I know, uh, not specifically for gaming addiction, but we have about 15 addiction specialists in Malaysia mm-hmm. and they do focus and work with gaming and other behavioral addictions as well. All right. You yourself, you're an addiction specialist as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you decide to go into that you know, specific specialty? I saw a real need. I mean, I think in Malaysia for a long time, we were punishing people with addictions and I saw that this was not helpful helping them get better. It was actually making the problem worse. So when I first qualified as a psychiatrist, a friend of mine and I, we set up our first addiction clinic and I saw people recover. Wow. And so I had hope and that's when I decided to do my subspecialty in it. Well, good for you and good for us. <laughs> now, coming up, uh, 50% of millennials have left a job for mental health reasons. We're going to take a look at that next after the traffic update in Hall & Oates here on Light. And on my matters, Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU. And it looks like 50% of millennials have left a job for mental health reasons, according to a new study. I guess it speaks to some of the biggest problems plaguing the entire generation. And they're known as the therapy generation. They mm-hmm. are cognizant about their mental health and, mm. you know, helping to destigmatize therapy. But do you feel that this is representative of Malaysian youth as well? Uh, yes, we're actually seeing a rise among millennials as well. And I think one of the factors is they're more mental health literate. Mm-hmm. You know, they're more open to mental health issues and they're able to talk about it. So I think that may play a big role. They're willing to look for help. And so maybe we're seeing our numbers rise because of that. But also, we've seen people, younger people actually have perhaps less resilience. Yes. And, I was just going to say that, you know, yeah. people in my generation, your generation, yeah. I mean, we just stick it out and, you know, yeah. we just, you know, suck it up. But these millennials and those younger, in fact, are, you know, they can't tahan and then they quit lah. But you can't blame them. <laughs> You've got to blame their parents. Uh-huh. You know, so resilience is really brought or brought on by parenting mm-hmm. and, you know, the environment, the school, the peers. And I think if we keep blaming the people there, when actually the fact starts from, you know, from a toddler age, when we become overprotective, helicopter parents, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't yeah. go out, wear a jacket, do this, and controlling over your child, they're going to take that on as their personality. And so they're going to need, they're going to have no more needs and wants and, you know, and find it difficult to cope when they're on their own. And I find that in college students. Right. You know, you put them out in college and they're away from their parents and all of a sudden they they really can't cope with new things. So I think we got to, you know, relook at how we're doing things. You know, sometimes parents try and make amends for what happened in their life Mm -hmm. and they become overprotective thinking they're doing more better for their kids they're actually harming them. Indeed. Now, the World Health Organization recently classified burnout as a syndrome, medically legitimizing the condition for the first time. Uh, what should be the next step? Well, yeah, I think burnout is a step towards developing a mental illness or a physical illness. So if you look at the yerkes dotson stress curve, where you put stress on the x-axis and performance on the y-axis, the more stress we have, the less performing we are. And we end up with burnout. And burnout then leads to hypertension, heart disease, cancer, depression, anxiety. So I think it's important for us to identify burnout because that's reversible. Mm -hmm. And so it's appropriate what WHO has done. When they can identify burnout, they can then make changes and help prevent, you know, the other consequences. All right. Well, Dr. Philip, it's been enlightening as usual uh, this week. Thank (laughs) Thank you, you, Shaz.